The best fried chicken in Texas. Rody's Country Fried Chicken. Texas born, Texas raised. A chicken joint with 35 years of service to our community. Thanks to our loyal customers and social media followers. Come try the best gizzards in Texas, the best tenders in Texas, and the best chicken in Texas. Call us at 830-773-9189. 830-773-9189. Don't forget, we have curbside service and delivery by DoorDash. Or find us on Facebook, Rodie's Chicken. R-O-D-E-E-S Chicken. Like us on Facebook. Like us on Facebook. The best fried chicken in Texas. Rodie's Country, Country Fried, fried Chicken. chicken. podcast that covers hard rock glam hair metal thrash metal death metal black metal at times thrash heavy metal hard rock the whole spectrum the whole nine yards the whole shebang as they say and this is that metal interview podcast we appreciate your support thank you for looking us up on all digital platforms uh now you can find us on anchor fm you can find us on Anchor, on uh, iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, and amongst a bunch of other uh, platforms. Thank you for your support. And uh, the people that uh, follow us on YouTube, our videos, don't forget to ring the bell. Three words. Grand Funk Railroad. Those three words. And you know who I'm talking about. Well, maybe not, because uh, there was three members in that band. And today... Our guest for the show is a former member of Grand Funk Railroad by the name of Mark Farner, as you already know his name. The tremendous legend of GFR is with us on our podcast on this episode, and um, we're going to chat with him about different things in his career, uh, different things that went on in the early part of Grand Funk Railroad. And uh, he clears one of my questions. I thought he had something to do with uh, Bruce Kulick's uh, uh, being a member of the the latest uh, version of Grand Funk. Where he answers that question, and he'll tell us whether he did or did not have anything to do with his replacement, or just on the guitar part, not the vocals. So, anyways, uh, anyways, we're gonna talk to him about a bunch of other. Bunch of other things dealing with his solo career. So uh, let's check it out, man. Here's our interview with Mr. Mark Farner. Enjoy. Let's talk about your uh, upcoming DVD uh, from Chile with Love. Uh, we can't wait to watch and hear that, us fans, you know. Uh, talk about this uh, experience and the, how does it feel being in front of all those people, you know? Yeah, brother. Uh, it was done in, in Santiago, Chile, and and the uh, the fans in, in Chile absolutely love me, and uh, and they love my music. And as soon as I hit the stage, uh, you can see in the video the enthusiasm of the audience is off the chart. Wow! And 
and they they sang my music back to me. I started the song, uh, "Are You Ready?" You know, I I opened with the with that song, and and they sang it loud as the PA was. Oh my God, it was so cool, man, to to have them singing my words, and uh, really uh, loved it. The the audience is so. Uh, enthusiastic, you know, for the rock and roll. They love American rock and roll, and uh, and I love to take it to them, brother. What's What's awesome about that is uh, most of them don't don't speak English, but right on. But they sing it real good. <laughs> wow, that's like wow, that's so cool. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, brother. So when is that coming out? For people that don't know, what is that DVD coming out? That DVD is coming out February 23rd, and uh, pre-sales are going on right now. And if you order, if you pre-order the DVD, you will get it signed. Everybody that orders, uh, pre-orders this DVD uh, gets it signed. And my wife Lisa and I are giving $3 from each DVD that sells retail for $14.99. We are giving $3 of each sale to the Veterans Support Foundation, which is a foundation uh, of, by, and for veterans of the U.S. And it helps uh, guys that are out on the street, the homeless vets, uh, uh, you know, veterans that are down and out this organization man is really for them and i saw firsthand i've been with these people since 1968 so i know they're real i know keith king from vietnam veterans of america who is heading up the uh, veteran support foundation that he's a real dude with a real big heart and this uh is for us it's an opportunity to give back to our veterans who risk their safety to protect ours, you know. Like I'd like to give the I'd like to give an eight hundred number if I could do that, James. Of course, of course. Yeah, man. Uh, if you know a vet or know of a vet that needs help, get this. Get your pen and paper ready because I'm gonna give you a number. It's a toll free number. Eight hundred. Eight eight two one three one six. That is eight hundred eight eight two one three one six. And on the web, it's www dot v as in Victor, f as in Sam, f as in Frank dash usa dot org. Vsf dash usa dot org. That's so cool. Thank you. That is yeah, very, man. very, very cool. So there you go. You guys got that 800 number. Before we get into uh, your career or music stuff, I got a quick, uh, strange question for you. Uh, I saw an interview where you speak of of some type of, uh, I don't want to say pills, but some, some deal where you help your circulation and your 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 oxygen levels in your, in your veins or something like that? Yeah, I've got, I use a certain brand of ginseng yeah. and the brand name is Ilhua it's two words I-L-H-W-A two words and I get it off uh, the internet is cheaper and 
It's a, I get it as a, uh, it's a extract. They call it a, a extract. Comes in a little uh, 100 gram bottle. And I put that just, and it comes with a little measuring spoon. So you measure it out and you put it in, uh, I put it in my coffee. So I just make it, the coffee weak. And then when I add the ginseng in there, it, it kicks it up and uh, it gives it a good, nice flavor. But you can't put it in anything over 150 degrees because you'll kill it. So I, I make sure that it's about 140 degrees, and uh, I drink it every day, brother. And it's got, you know, I'm 73 this year, and uh, this doctor told me I had the cleanest arterial system he has ever seen. And he did a 12-year-old boy the day before uh, that he came in to see me, and he wanted me to know that I was cleaner than that 12-year-old kid. So, wow. uh, you know... That's the only thing, Brother James, that I do every day, like religiously. I take that every day, and that's that's what I uh, attribute my good arteries and my good flow from. I I, I don't have a problem with blockage. Uh, the guy who did the catheter on me, he he said that he took that camera up around my heart valves and what have you. He says, you don't have anything. He says, I'm talking about it is spotless in your veins and your arteries. Uh, he said, I've never seen anything like it. That's why I had to come to your room and ask you what the heck you are doing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow, that's just awesome. I heard about that, and, and now i got to get it now, so I hope I can make a 70 or, you know, a, a good age, you know, 80, 90. That's cool. Yeah, brother. Absolutely. So, good uh, long life. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> awesome. So how did uh, Grand Funk start for people that are, for newer fans, for people that don't know, uh, wh whose idea was this and uh, was it your idea and uh, what year are we talking about here for the beginning of uh, Grand Funk? Well, we had a, we had an experience with the band that I was in and the band was called The Fabulous Pack. And we had a gig out in um, Cape Cod, uh, Boston, Massachusetts area. A actually, we had, uh, I think, three or four gigs that they had booked for us out there. But they told us um, at Delta Promotions here in Michigan, where we were being booked out of, they said, you, you go out there and play, and you got to play for free, but... Uh, if you do a good job and impress these people, we can go back and make some good money. So we, you know, we said, we do whatever we have to do. You know, we're three kids from Flint, Michigan, and at the time, uh, 19 years old, and, uh, you know, we went out there and, and we're playing, and we stayed in summer cottages on Cape Cod, and we were in East Sandwich, Massachusetts, right there on Cape Cod, and uh, the guy from the mainland would bring us groceries every once in a while, but that's all we had to eat was whatever he would bring over there, because we didn't have any money between us. Uh, we, we were doing it for free, we thought, uh, and then the worst snowstorm in the history of the world came down <laughs> on the East Coast. And we got socked in there, James. We got trapped by the snow. Really? And uh, 
the, the these cottages that we were in were not built for winter. Uh, they're summer cottages with no insulation. They only had like a little heater on the wall, but that's where we we stayed. We kind of huddled around that heater, and the pipes froze, and we we didn't have any running water. We couldn't flush the toilet, dude. We had to use a paper sack and a chair that didn't have a seat in it, and we kind of makeshifted our our toilet. And then when you got done doing your number two, you would take it out and bury it in a snowbank someplace. <laughs> I would have hated. I would have hated to be the guy who was doing spring cleanup around there. I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> But, wow. but uh, after two weeks, and we were we were gone. We were uh, locked down there. I mean, two weeks, and two of the guys in the band, the keyboard player was married, and the guitar player, Kenny Rich, was married. And their wives both uh, threatened them the way they're going to divorce them if they ever did anything like that again. They had to quit the band. They had to quit the band. And so that broke the band up. And uh, Don and I were talking one day, and I said, well, why don't we just do a three-piece group? Yeah. And let's let's get a bass player that's not married, <laughs> <laughs> you know? We can't have women breaking our band up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so we go up to Delta Promotions, because we found out that we were, actually, we were being paid for those gigs out there in Massachusetts, uh, $350 a night and we wanted to find out what the heck happened to our money and because when we left uh, we ended up uh, hitchhiking uh, the, the drummer and I hitchhiked up the coast to a, a drugstore that was a Western Union station and we got cash that the drummer's mother sent us. She sent us enough cash that we could rent a van, put our equipment all in the van, and drive back to Michigan. So uh, we, you know, we went up there, we hitchhiked, we got the money, we we rented the van and and came home, and we were gonna go up to Delta Promotions and give them a piece of our mind because when we found out that we were being paid, we wanna know where the hell that money was. So we go up there and we're sitting in the waiting room and Delta Promotions was a facility that had a little rehearsal studio in there and a recording studio in the other part. It was, you know, quite a a little place there. And we're waiting uh, in the waiting room, setting to uh, uh, get in a talk with uh, Bill Keyhole, the guy that owned the place. And there's a band in the rehearsal part and we couldn't hear, you know, the music too good, but you could hear that bass coming through the wall. And I said, Brewer, man, listen to that. Whoever that bass player is could play right there. And he said, yeah, I wonder who that is. Well, when they took a break, Mel Shocker steps out, and I go, oh, my God, it's Mel Shocker, man. No wonder we like that bass playing. I said, well, Mel and I had gone to school together. Okay. We rode dirt bikes together, man. We smoked weed together. We did all kinds of, we were friends, you know. And I told him, I said, Mel, I know you're with Question Mark and the Mysterians, um, but we're going to start a three-piece band and, and just wanted to know if you wanted to, uh, you know, try out with us and see if we could do this. And he says, yeah, man, he says, because I am so ready to leave this band. Uh, I guess he crashed a 
one of their vehicles and it was bad there was some bad blood there whatever and he needed to leave that band anyway so <laughs> we started playing in uh, flint federation of musicians uh, the union hall in flint michigan on averill street and uh, that next week uh, i was writing music and uh, we were we were grand Funk, but we didn't know the name of the band yet because uh, terry knight our manager uh, he was a songwriter, too, and he wrote a song called Grand Funk Railroad. He said, why don't you guys uh, name your band the, the name of my song, Grand Funk Railroad? We looked at each other and said, yeah, that's pretty cool. We'll do that. And that's how the name came about. But the, the name was actually taken from an, a railway system that ran through Ontario, Canada, down through Michigan and Ohio, and it was called Grand Trunk and Western Railway. So uh, it's just a play from that that actual railway system is how we got the name of the band. But uh, we did the rehearsals at the Flint Federation of Musicians, and I wrote the first album pretty much in that building. Every time I get an inspiration, they go, have you got words yet? I think, no, I'm just getting this inspiration. Like, uh, you know, when I wrote Sin's a Good Man's Brother, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling it. They said, okay, we'll go down to McDonald's and uh, we'll pick you up some cheeseburgers and stuff, uh, but by the time we get back, maybe you'll have it. So they would do that, and I would write a song. And every time they go down to McDonald's or Burger King or someplace to get food, I would write another song. That's how we did the first album, the second album. <laughs> oh, wow. It was just, yeah, it just came together like that real fast, brother. What a story. Wow. Now, I've read and I've heard you guys signed a, a bad deal with a record company back back then, right? Uh, can you talk about that? Yeah, actually, the, the manager that we had Terry Knight, he signed a production deal with Capitol Records. And we were signed to his company, which is Goodnight Productions. Uh -huh. And he he told us that the money that we were making, 6%, was more that, than the Beatles made. And and we believed him. I was, you know, a 20-year-old kid. Yeah. Uh, and, and he said that uh, I... I needed to publish my songs through his company because he had a worldwide affiliation. And I don't know any of this. I'm 20 years old. My mother had to sign the contract because you got to be 21 in the state of Michigan. That's, you know, that's when you're legal. So my mother signs the contract for me. She doesn't know anything about it. Nobody knows anything about it in my family. Uh, and that's how people get taken advantage of. Uh, because you don't know, and you, you trust the individual that is pitching you on what they're going to do for you. But that's, uh, that's how the band got started, and, and the, the first gig, the first big gig that we did was in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, at a pop festival that had 185,000 people there. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and, and we opened the show because the attorneys who in New York City that Terry Knight was using, they also were doing the legal work for this pop festival in Atlanta, Georgia. So they made a deal with the promoters uh, to get us to, to go on first. 
and opened the show for all these big acts. I mean, it was Hendrix and Joplin and 10 Years After and, oh man, that, you know, back in the day, uh, Sly and the Family Stone, oh man, it was a, it was a great festival. Wow. But we didn't, we didn't have an opportunity to, to see the size of this crowd just by looking out through the cracks in the fence, you could look into the first few rows, maybe, you know, 10 rows, maybe. Yeah. But you couldn't see past that. So when it was time to go on stage, I get up to the top of the stage ladder or, you know, the steps, and you're 15 feet above the audience's head now. And I looked out and I saw an ocean of people, dude. I mean, it wow. was people as far as your eye could see and I turned to the tech and I go dude I gotta piss so bad he said said, forget about that you gotta plug that thing in and play man it's your turn it's your time right now so we went we played and and the people loved us brother wow and they weren't they weren't all from Atlanta Georgia they from they were from every state in the United States and the word went out quick about Grand Funk Railroad and Capitol Records uh, had some acts on that uh, that pop festival, of course, 1969, and they saw us go on and they saw the reaction from the crowd and they uh, talked to our manager, Terry Knight, uh, about, you know, can we sign them? Well, that's when he did his production deal and then he signed us. To make a long story short, <laughs> at the end of three years, uh, we had we were up for contract renewal with our manager, and and uh, they said you guys are going to owe the IRS four hundred thousand dollars, and you don't have the money. Uh, so what will happen is we will loan you the money to pay the IRS if you will sign another three-year contract with us, with Cherry Knight and these attorneys uh, in New York City. And I said, well, damn, that's something you just don't make up your mind, you know, right away. You can't just shoot an answer back. I said, we got to talk this over. And they said, okay, we'll go in the other room. So they left the room. And Brother James, I went over and I sat down in that attorney's big chair I tilted back, I kicked my feet up on that desk, and I said, what are we gonna do, boys? It's like, I feel like they they are pressuring us because, did you know about this IRS thing? I asked the drummer, he said, no. I said, did you know about it, Mel? The bass player? He said, no, I didn't know about it. This is the first time I ever heard of it. I said, well, why the hell did they wait till now? It just feels like they're using that to try and sucker us into another three years. I, it just doesn't feel good. And just as I'm saying that, I'm dragging my feet down off the desk because I want to set up. But I hit that uh, top drawer in the in the attorney's desk. I hit it with my foot, and the door and the drawer opened up. Yeah. And I sat up and I looked down, and here is a copy of the contract between. Terry Knight and Capitol Records. Good Night Productions and Capitol Records. And it's for 16%, Brother James. So I went, are you kidding me? 
and I showed the guys, and I said, look at this. And they went, oh, my God, it's a good thing you kicked that drawer open. We would have never known. Well, uh, he was not only uh, taking 10% and giving the band six, then he took a manager's commission of our money, of our 6%, and he took my publishing from all my songs. So I really got screwed. We got screwed. We told them, guys, well, we... We're going to think about this. We'll give you an answer in a week or so. This is not something we can just come up with an answer. So so as soon as we left that attorney's office, we got a hold of another attorney, uh, John Eastman, in New York City to represent us. And we uh, sued Terry Knight, and he countersued us, and we went back and forth, and, and uh, we finally settled it and we own the name Grand Funk Railroad. At least we have that. And it was just like starting all over again after three years. Uh, but we had our camaraderie. We had all the songs out there. We had the audiences uh, because uh, they loved our music. And I wrote 92% of it, Brother James. So wow. um, I am who my songs say I am. And that's who the people expect to see on that stage and I give them that guy every time wow is there a excuse my ignorance is there a movie on this there should be a movie on this stuff man there should be a movie on it there really should be and uh, so far nobody has come up and said we want to do a movie and uh, but I you know I would definitely be into it and I don't know about the other guys because I've been trying to get them to put the real band, the original three-piece band, back together for 20 years, but there's just uh, jealousy and ego and all that horse crap. Just like uh, it would be trying to, you know, if somebody got a divorce, you try to put those two people back together, it's not going to be an easy deal. <laughs> you know? So that's kind of the way it's setting right now, but... I love playing music, and uh, I have tried for, like I said, 20 years. I've been telling them guys, let's go and give them the real band. Let's give them the, the original three guys, man. We are all still alive, and there's no guarantee we're going to be all alive next year to, to do this. So let's do it. But uh, it's not very well received. In fact, they reject it every time. So, But I'm still going to keep trying, dude. Wow. I'm still going to keep pitching it to them. The guy, everybody's still alive, so it'd be a good idea. Wow. Yeah, man. Uh, at what point uh, would you say Grand Funk broke it big into the big time? Was it with a what song you think, or what? At what point in time did you guys did you see a difference in uh, I guess uh, contracts and gigs? At what point did you make it big? Well, when we played the Atlanta Pop Festival. It was from that point on, the okay. audiences, from that point on, the audiences were all big audiences, and we, in 1971, we went over, we played Europe, and uh, wow. Humble Pie opened our show for us in Europe, and we said uh, to the manager, I, I, I told him, I said, you know, we need to get these guys to open our tour in the United States, and... Uh, because they really rock the house, man. They really, you know, they're really good musicians and, and they're good guys, good-hearted dudes. So we brought them to the U.S. and their first gig, their debut show, 
with that Shea Stadium in New York City to a sold-out crowd of 55,000 people. Wow. Yeah, man. And the rest is history. Now, that's back when it was Frampton and uh, Steve Marriott and uh, Jerry Sherman, all the original guys in, in Humble Pie, and that band really rocked. Oh, boy, did they rock. Wow, that's some awesome history right there. Um, I've read uh, you've played basically everywhere by now. I mean, you've, you've got a long career. So you've played in prisons, right? In what? Have you played in a prison? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I played uh, maximum security prisons. I played in uh, the county jails. I played in uh, drug rehabs. I played in juvenile uh, camps where there's 13 to 19 year old, uh, you know, juveniles in there that are in there from uh, street gangs and what have you. Uh, but I I do a program for people in the prison that's that's loud and rocking, and I play the tracks. And I take my amp in there, and I turn my guitar up, Brother James, <laughs> and I let rip. And, uh, and they love it, man, because, uh, you know, nobody's coming to them. Nobody, uh, I'm not saying nobody, but nobody like me that rocks their asses for them. Uh, and, and I'm very well received in that kind of uh, setting. Now, here's a different, uh, a slightly different uh, question. Uh, I was born, I was born Catholic. I believe in God and everything. Uh, yes. What made you turn to, to Christian uh, music? Well, my wife had left me back in 1982, and uh, actually, when I when my dad died, I was a nine nine year old boy, and my my dad died, and uh, I saw my mother um, really start to mourn and and. I saw what death did to the family and that. And uh, Billy Graham was in Flint, Michigan at Atwood Stadium putting on a program. And I had walked uh, from the dining room where my uh, aunts and uncles and my grandfather and, and uh, grandmother all were. They were trying to console my mother and everybody was crying. and. You know, I just walked in the other room, in the living room, and we had got a new, uh, it was our first television set when I was nine years old. So I walked in there, and Billy Graham's on there, dude, and he's saying, if you're hurting, if you need a touch from God, if he's saying all this stuff, and, and I'm just standing there looking at this guy, and I'm thinking, he's talking to me. And so I put, he said, if you need it, I want you to put your hand on the television set. So I put my hand on the television set, and I prayed, and I asked Jesus into my heart back then when I was nine years old. But I went on my way, and I had a famous uh, career and all this, uh, you know, a lot of uh, success uh, with my endeavors in music. And then when I got married, uh, you know, we had children, had two boys at the time. And uh, and I come home to uh, an empty house one night, and I said, you know, I came back from the studio. I was down in Flint, and I came back uh, 230 miles north to my house, and she was gone, and my kids were over at uh, their aunt 
next was a, was her sister's house, and I, I you know, here's this note, and she's gone, and I'm thinking, oh my God, uh, what am I gonna do? So I, I started thinking, you know, I, I had a 12 pack of beer there, and I'm, I try to, I'm trying to drown my troubles with the beer, but it didn't work for my mother, and it wasn't working for me. Um, and I had a vision, Brother James. I looked over, and the corner of the living room had a, a leaded glass window of a pheasant in it. And the, when the sun came through there, it put these this beautiful uh, red and orange and all these different colors in the room. But as I was looking into that picture or the, that of the pheasant there, the, the leaded glass, it's like that whole portion of the room opened up it, and there I could see myself standing in front of that television with my hand on it and praying. That came to me as a vision and it wasn't from the beer, dude, because <laughs> I, I was only, you know, just a, a couple of beers into this and I said, man, I gotta go find God. I have to find God. Uh, so I went to different churches, I, but I always would go with my faded jeans and Hawaiian shirt, a headband and sneakers. And, you know, if they could get past me being this hippie, yeah. then I might, be able, I might be able to listen to what they were saying to me. But I found that the, the churches that I was going into, the hellfire and brimstone, and they trying to scare you into uh, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I thought, man, this is not it. And finally, one day, I got into this church where the, the people didn't know who I was. Uh, they just saw that I was this long haired guy with a headband, Hawaiian shirt, faded jeans, and sneakers, and old ladies, older women came up to me, how are you doing son, good to you, is this your first time? And they gave me a hug, and I felt the love in their hugs, brother. I wow, this is a, man, maybe this is the church where I'm supposed to be. Okay. Well, that morning, Pastor Exley preached on the institution of marriage according to God's word and how people walk out the front door of the church and they leave God behind. They don't they don't take the seriousness with them in their relationship. And it's like he was shooting me right straight. He like God put me there to hear that message because I thought he was preaching to me, straight to me. And when he gave an altar call, I scurried up there. I got there quick. And I told him about my wife being gone, and she'd been gone a couple weeks, and I wanted to, I wanted to pray to get her back. Uh, I told him I'd been in other churches. I said, I, I never felt like God was there. I said, but I feel God is in this church, and I want to pray because I really love my wife, and I want to get her back. He says, you pray, and I'll agree. And that's what he said. Dude, I just started praying, you know, God, give me my wife back. Please bring her back. You know, I'd do anything to keep her. La, 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 la. That day, man, uh, 50 miles away in another city, uh, she gave her life to Jesus, too. So the same day, uh, we, we reunited uh, in the spirit, and we... We reclaimed our marriage uh, for the sake of love because 
that's what we are in our heart, in the middle of who we are, in our physical being here. We were put here from love, and that's that's who our, uh, the power of our nature is founded in love, man. And as long as we devote ourselves to that love, uh, we'll always forgive one another because that's what love does. And we've been together. It'll be, uh, it's 43 years, January 8th, that this month was 43 years that we've been together. And, uh, wow. and we are not going to be separated, man. We are, we are going to stay together until, uh, until the Lord pulls us out of the bone suit and takes us back to paradise. Wow. Congrats on that. And uh, what a story, man. Wow. Yeah, yeah, brother. So as far as, uh, songwriting, when you, when you write a Christian song, is there is there a different approach uh, than to a non-Christian song? Obviously, the lyrics are different. What is there a different approach there when writing a Christian song? Yes, it's a uh, well. Early on, when I first started doing Christian music, I was I was in a church that was a, a non-denominational non-denominational church, and uh, they were you know, a little more free with their presentation and what they were doing. But they they were uh, institutionalized. And so some of my music went out from that, you know, misconception of what God and Jesus was. Uh, and, and it's almost like some of the songs that I wrote were scolding people for not believing or for not letting the Lord into their heart. I, I kind of, you know, I had to go through that, but that's not really who the Lord is. And I, I didn't find out, you know, until later in life about the mind of Christ and how we can attain the mind of Christ if we just uh, go back to who we are in, in the foundation of love. Because we were not born with M16s in our hands and knives in our teeth. You got to teach kids how to take the life of another. You got to show them or they got to be, you know, that's not a natural inclination for a child. And and so the the religious um got on me at first, but then when I got delivered from the religion, dude, oh man, I got set free uh, in the mind of Christ. I started attaining that mind because it's up to each one of us individually to either accept or reject the debt that people bring into our life. And we are controlled by debt. And debt is a weapon that is formed against the people. This indebtedness being beholden to somebody. You can't really tell them how you really feel because you owe them something or you're beholden to, to them for something. And, and this debt consciousness has uh, moved this entire world. And, and when we lost control of our money in 1913, two days before Christmas, when the Federal Reserve Act was signed in, we, as a nation, as a people in this country, became indebted 
beyond escape. As long as these families issue the currency to our country, we are indebted to them, and we've been fighting their wars, and we've been uh, distracted by uh, their ill wishes and by the, their uh, intention to dominate and rule the world through a new world order and a one world government. Uh, it's a bunch of horsey poo poo. Yeah. You know? Yep. It's, uh, it's something that we can't adhere to. Christ wants us to be free. But Christ said, if you want to reign with me, you're going to have to suffer with me. So when you get free, people don't like it because they're not free. And they are jealous of that freedom that you have. Because when you're in the spirit and you're free and you're setting yourself free, which is your obligation to yourself and to love, is to set yourself free, then you're in communication with Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the blood that makes us all one in spirit. And we can actually be a Christian, a real Christian. And I have seen miracles, brother, yeah. in disbelief. Oh, wow. Yes. Well, there are very nice words there and uh, the truth, for sure. Yeah, um, hallelujah. Here is a uh, different question. Um, uh, we interviewed uh, Bruce Kulik a couple of months ago. Uh, great guy, down to earth, you know. Uh, how did you guys select him uh, to jam with Grand Funk? And uh, why him? <laughs> well, I didn't have anything to do with picking those guys that are in what they call Grand Funk today. Yeah. In fact. Okay. Uh, they kicked me out of the corporation back in 1998, I yeah. think it was. And uh, I'm no longer an officer in the corporation of GFR. Um, I'm a shareholder because, you know, they couldn't steal my shares, but uh, being a shareholder doesn't give me a voice uh, to be heard. So even though I wrote and sang... 92% uh, of all that music, those guys, uh, because Don Brewer, the drummer, uh, he came to me one night after a gig and he said, Mark, we need to all sign the individual ownership of the trademark that we have, Grand Fork Railroad. We need to sign it over to the corporation where it will have a protection and a, a protective umbrella. And I thought he was, you know, looking out for the best interest of the band and, and everything. And I said, okay, yeah, I'll do that. He says, okay, I'll go to my room and get the papers. And when he left, I thought to myself, well, why didn't he just bring the papers with him? And uh, anyway, he brings the papers back. I sign them. I didn't know that I was signing my death warrant right there and that I would no longer have any say in the band and uh, and that those guys were kicking me out. Um, it just happened that way. Oh, wow. But I'm, I'm rolling with the punches, and they they picked Bruce Kulik and a couple of other guys, a keyboard player and a singer, uh, to replace me. But I can say, hey, it took three dudes to replace me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you... Know? you 
I thought you had something to do with the, with Pickett Bruce. Yeah. No, I had nothing to do with it. I played with uh, with Bruce at Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, yeah. and uh, we did the Howard Stern show. We played I'm Your Captain, and Bruce was on guitar there. And Bruce and I get along. I don't hold anything against him. Uh, I don't hold anything against the other guys down in Mel of yeah. Grand Funk, but I, I keep telling them every year, why can't we give the fans the original band? Why can't we put the real Grand Funk back out there before one of us dies and we don't have that option anymore? For sure. But for, for 20 years, they've been rejecting me and, and going out and pretending to be Grand Funk, but really, I wrote 92% of the music. The songs that I wrote say who I am. They don't say who those guys are. So they're, they're getting, they can be nothing more than a tribute band without the, the lead guy. You and are. That's what they do. You yeah. are Grand Funk. In, in our eyes, in the fans' eyes, you are Grand Funk. So. But Thank you, it. Brother James. Yes, for sure. Um, talk to us about your experience uh, touring with uh, the great Ringo Starr. Oh, that was a great experience. We we rehearsed up in uh, British Columbia in Vancouver for two weeks prior to leaving for Japan, and we we played Japan eighteen days before coming back to the United States and finishing the tour here. So. Uh, after two weeks of rehearsal, um, Ringo comes to my uh, room. We had an apartment there. My kids were there. My wife was there. Everybody had their families around because we had you know two weeks of, of rehearsal, and I can't be away from my family that long, you know. So Ringo comes into the to the apartment there that we had rented, and he introduces himself to the kids and the kids all oh yeah yeah and and he's just really a good-hearted soul and we go to japan and in in tokyo we had a, a press conference and we were up on a podium sitting at a table real long table and it was uh ringo was in the middle and the band was down the, the left side and the right side of him kind of like uh, looked like the Last Supper, you yeah. know, like, a, like Christ at the Last Supper. And this uh, little uh, Japanese gal who was writing for one of the uh, rock and roll magazines there in, in Japan, she comes up and she said, I have a question for Mr. Farr. And so I stand up. And she said, I want to know, what is it like playing with Beatles? And I said, let me tell you something, honey. Ringo puts his pants on one leg at a time, just like anybody else does. And Ringo stands up and he says, thank you, brother. And he comes over and he gives me a big hug because <laughs> I recognized him as being just a man, just a guy. And because if you were Ringo Starr, uh, you would be bothered every moment by people wanting your autograph. And interrupting no matter what you're doing they will come up and say will you sign this and and he just got tired of it um he can put a baseball cap on and sunglasses 
but he looks like Ringo Starr in baseball cap and certainly. I mean, you can't disguise that face. There's something about his face he can't hide. <laughs> so he, he's just, uh, he has to, you know, rely on other people to, uh, to clarify that for him. And, and I, I appreciate the fact, you know, from what little bit of stardom compared to the Beatles. I mean, they are known by everybody everywhere. Uh, but the stardom that I had and have, I continue to have, it was, it was a lower level as far as volume and as far as the faces that, that saw my face. But I understand what he's talking about. And he even did a thing on, on YouTube, Brother James, where he said, don't send me anything to sign. I'm never going to sign anything. Don't bring anything to me to sign. I'm not signing anything. It's over. No more signatures. No more of this the kind of stuff. He was really kind of pissed off. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I understand because he's, he's uh, bombarded all the time. Um, and, and I felt sorry for him because he, all he wanted, to, you know, he just wanted to be one of the guys. He just wanted to be, hang out, but he can't because of his stature and, and everybody, you know, expects more of him, I guess. But uh, I had a good time with him, actually, because, you know, we, I, I let him be who he is. And, and I never looked at him as being some kind of superhuman. I just looked at him as being super lucky and to be with the Beatles. And I looked at myself as being super lucky to be playing in his all-star band. And uh, wow. I, I thank God for it. What an experience. Um, yeah, brother. So as far as... Uh, uh, as far as Grand Funk and your solo stuff, what's uh, give us your favorite song to play live? I'm your captain. Awesome. There you go. Give us your uh, give us your best gig and your worst gig. Well, the best gig was that first Atlanta Pop Festival, and uh, God, I can't tell you a worst gig. We all had, we never had a bad gig. Really? We, well, let me just let me just say that the audience always loved us and they always embraced us. And based on that, I say we never had a bad gig. But one time we were playing at the warehouse in New Orleans, and they had units outside, air conditioning units that were on trailers. And they had these huge hoses that were like expandable hoses that were four or five feet in diameter. And they were blowing air into the warehouse uh, through these big plastic hoses. And it was, it was sufficing, you know, it, it was uh, a lot better than if we didn't have it, but it was still hotter than the sheriff's pistol in there, brother. <laughs> and and the, the condensation from the air conditioning was building up on the inside of these plastic hoses that are four or five feet in diameter. And one of the hoses broke loose from over the top of the stage when uh, Don Brewer was in his drum solo in PNUC and uh, the cold, that ice cold water hit him and he locked up. He locked up like 
Oh my God, he, he couldn't move his arms, he couldn't move his legs, he was sitting on the drum throne, just bent over, and we went and picked him off, the, off of his drum throne, carried him up the steps, because he couldn't walk, we carried him up, put him in the dressing room, uh, you know, dried him off, got, got some heat on him, and about... 20 minutes later, we went back on stage and we finished our show, dude. Wow. Uh, but that that was uh, that was bad for everybody right there. Well, that's a cool story. Well, that's a what a story. <laughs> so, uh, what what can fans expect next from yourself, uh, Mark? Uh, what's next for Mark Farner? Well, I'm gonna take any live gigs I get right now people are saying oh it's gonna be this it's gonna be that you're gonna have to have a vaccine you're gonna have to have proof you're gonna do this it's all speculation right now because nobody really knows but I'm gonna continue to play music until I stop sucking air brother James I, it's just it's part of who I am and uh, whether it's gonna be more of the zoom videos or live and in person, I'm gonna keep. Uh, I'm gonna keep playing music uh, until I stop sucking air. Awesome, thank you. Uh, would you like to send a message to the people listening to this podcast? Yes, I would like to send a message out to all the listeners to turn in to your heart, tune in to what's inside of you, shut down the all the media. Get yourself, get your head out of anything that's trying to direct you or trying to capture your attention and go to your heart because God put us here, love put us here, and love will never abandon us. Even in our worst predicament, we still have the love burning in us. So I just want to encourage my brothers and sisters that we are not different. We are alike. All of our blood, no matter what nationality we are, our blood is red. And we are communicating through the red blood of love. And God does love us. God came to this earth in the form of a man and Jesus Christ did walk and there was miracles and that to me I, I want to see more miracles but we can't see them if we got our head wrapped around all of the BS that's coming from all the social media and coming from the lamestream ABC, NBC, CBS all of those uh, mainstream uh, they're all controlled and they all have this agenda taking us away from who we really are. I want to bring us back to who we are as a people. No matter what color you are, no matter what persuasion you are, we are all put here by love and love is in the heart of our existence. It is the soul that keeps us intact in this bone suit and someday we leave the bone suit Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us the love that takes us back. Thank you, Lord. And bless the listeners. Bless the listeners so that they touch that love, so that they know there's nothing that we want except for them to know this love. 
And for that sake, I say hallelujah. Thank you for the words, Mark. I appreciate that. And thank you for making time. And we hope to uh, see you on the road, man. Hope something yeah, sometime. Yeah, brother James. Sometime it's in the good future. Good to be with you. Yeah, yeah, man. That metal interview. Yeah, I like your podcast, brother. Awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that. Wow. Thank you for being a part of it. Appreciate that. Yeah. God bless you. A living legend we have just experienced. Uh, we thank Mr. Farner for speaking to us, speaking to us about his career, past and present. And don't forget to support Mr. Farner. Uh, look him up on social media. Uh, pre-order uh, his uh, up-and-coming DVD from Chile with Love, Mark Farner, of course. So check that out. Uh, pre-order it. If you're listening to this podcast, when the DVD came out, uh, means you can already purchase it. So support Mr. Farner on social media and his website. So thank you for supporting us one more time. Thank you for looking us up on social media. We are now available on Anchor FM. Uh, you guys can look us up on there, our podcast episodes and all the other ones, of course. So don't forget to keep it metal. That metal interview.